0: Welcome back to the Bulwark. Goes to Hollywood. My name is Sonny Bunch. I'm culture editor at the Bulwark, uh, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Michael Schulman, uh, New York Times best-selling author. He's got a new book out called Oscar Wars: A History of Hollywood and Gold, Sweat, and Tears. Uh, he is a staff writer at the New Yorker, where he's been contributing since 2006. He's written in for the New York Times, Vanity Fair, um, The Believer, all, all sorts of places. Uh, and this book is great. It's 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 a it's a big it's a big large tome. You've got a lot of Oscar history to cover here. You know, we've got almost. A century of Oscar uh, talk to get through here, so I'm gonna I'm gonna try and move through the eras. We're we're gonna get it all in here. But uh, thank you for being on the show, Michael. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: All right, so there is a there's a there's a moment at the at the end of your book where you're talking about kind of the the silliness of introducing you know the most popular Oscar category and the tension between rewarding what is what is the best movie of the year and what is the most popular movie of the year. Um, and you have you have this line. It's interesting uh, because the Oscars should be uh, celebrating merit regardless of profitab- profitability, and they should be lifting up small movies, end quote. And I'm I'm, I'm actually, I after reading the book and getting this line, I, I wonder if that's actually true, right? I mean, th- your whole book, your whole book uh, is is about the kind of um, underlying uh, tension between what is actually good and what people are voting for, and, you know, why the Oscars were even created in the first place, right?
1: Well, yeah, the Oscars have always had a... Tension, a tug of war between whether to award size and spectacle and the sort of production value of film, or whether to ignore all that and um, lift up something that is sort of small and has uh, has a a a kind of uh, a less showy version of the, the the art form. I mean, from the very beginning, the first Academy Awards in 1929 had two top prizes. One was for Outstanding Picture, which went to Wings, a gigantic. War movie with a lot of special effects and planes flying in the air and battle scenes. And the other category was best, unique, and artistic picture, which went to Sunrise, which was a little, uh, you know, a smaller kind of psychodrama. And I think you can see that tension through the decades. I mean, think about 1953, the year that uh, the greatest show on earth, the big Cecil B. DeMille circus spectacular, somehow beat. You know, High Noon, which is a less showy, spectacular, gigantic movie, but a much better movie in a million different ways. And I think all the way up to this year, you see that in the nominees where you have Avatar and Top Gun Maverick, you know, big movies uh, sitting across from Tar and Women Talking and I think it's, and then you have something that sort of combines the two of them, like everything, everywhere, all at once, which is why I think uh, that's one reason I think it's, it's, it's got so much momentum. It kind of has both in one package. But I do think the Academy is always pulled between what to reward, the, 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 the size and scope and, uh, and this sort of sheer magnitude of filmmaking power or uh, movies that hone in on something small and do it really well.
0: Well, let's let's even take it a step back further than that, because you know one of the, one of the things I, I love about your book, and it's 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 a topic I knew a little bit about, but I learned learned a lot here, um, is the actual formation of the Academy, the actual introduction of the Oscars, which was done at least in part to mm, stymie union building activity in the in Hollywood in in the industry. You know, kind of try to try to show folks, hey, you you know. If you want to win the big awards, you can't. You can't necessarily join the union. You got to be part of the academy. What, what? What was the? Talk us through that and the the impetus of some of the uh, producers and the the stars and the directors who were instrumental in the founding of the the academy and the Oscars.
1: Yeah, that was certainly a part of it. So the academy was founded in 1927 by uh, 36 people who were a cross section of very powerful people in silent era Hollywood. Um, but the idea came from Louis B. Mayer, the very powerful head of MGM. And the rhetoric that the early academy had was it was very utopian. It was all about creating harmony in the industry among the various factions uh, in the industry at the time. Uh, and it was about lifting up you know, the art of motion picture, blah, blah, blah. blah. Um, but if you look a little closer about why they were saying those things, one of them was that... Hollywood was not a union town except for the craftspeople, but the actors, directors, and writers were not unionized. There were signs that that might change. Actors Equity, which organized stage actors back east, was trying to make inroads in Hollywood. And people like Louis P. Mayer knew that if that happened, it would be a huge thorn in his side. And so when they talk about harmony and how, you know, Everyone was fighting that, you know, producers were fighting with writers and directors were fighting with executives. Blah, blah, blah. Um, what the Academy did in large part in its early years was oversee contract negotiations and mediate disputes. You know, if an actor was fired unfairly or someone a writer claimed they didn't get paid enough for a, a draft, the, the, the Academy would step in and hear cases and <laughs> deliver verdicts. And this was extremely controversial from the start because the the rank and file in Hollywood believed that this was essentially a tool of the producers to kind of um, preempt real unionization and and kind of control control all mediation and and contracts and and this turned very very ugly in the 30s when um, you know after so basically the the, the Academy's existence successfully repelled. Actors Equity in the twenties, essentially, and unions, and it preempted the formation of, of of unions until during the depression the guilds rose up. You know, SAG and the Screenwriters Guild, the Screen Directors Guild, and once those bodies existed, they really went to war with the Academy, all out war. Um, They told their members to send in their resignations. They could not be in the academy. They Later in the 30s, they started boycotting the the Oscar ceremony. Um, And uh, it it was not guaranteed that the academy would exist because everyone hated it so much. And the way this got resolved was that Frank Capra, who was the president of the academy – for a long time in the 30s he loved the idea of the academy he loved winning oscars he thought this was important that this thing survive and so um he essentially decided that okay if everyone hates the fact that the academy is weighing in on labor disputes and economic issues we're just not going to do that anymore and so the academy just stopped doing those things and they kept the oscars which is the only thing that they did that People in Hollywood seem to like because everyone wanted to win this award.
0: What was it? Uh, what was it about the Oscar that appealed to Frank Capra so much? Because I mean, it is a really interesting little kind of sidebar in this in this whole big story. Is that like Frank Capra is like desperate to win an Oscar. He's desperate. He like he just yeah. he wants he wants the he wants the you know the the praise and the but he also finds himself you know kind of in a stuck in a in a between a rock and a hard place here because he at the same time doesn't want to. Um, you know, look like a shill for the studios. He doesn't want to um, uh, sell out his fellow directors and, and other artisans. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was what was that all about?
1: Exactly. I mean, well, Capra wrote an autobiography. The name of the title, um, which is a really fun, uh, amusing book, and uh, not completely trustworthy because Capra kind of rewrote his life story to be a, a Capra comedy. You Sort of read these tales of his coming up in the world, and it it sort of feels like. You know Mr. Deeds goes to town or something. um everything is very plucky and falls right into place. But it's really interesting to hear his version of events and how he saw himself, which was as this impoverished immigrant who came from Italy as a child um and pulled himself up by his bootstraps and kind of used his his wit and his gu- and his um you know his wiles to uh to become the most successful director in Hollywood, he saw the Academy as the ultimate manifestation of the establishment. And he wanted to be part of the establishment. And he saw winning an Oscar as a way to do that. And he pursued it. I mean, the way he tells it, he just basically decided what movie to make based on what would win him an Academy Award. And then once he did that with It Happened One Night, he became president of the Academy and sort of Became the, the the establishment. I mean, this is sort of what he wanted. Um, he wanted to be part of that that echelon. And fascinatingly, at the minute he becomes um, academy president, he's he is now being besieged by these guilds. And he was, you know, he was a republican. He really was not that interested in 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 labor organizing. But then suddenly, his own peers, the the Screen Directors Guild, this brand new thing, um, they wanted him. You know, he was the most successful director. And he was sort of brushing off this this union uh, until they finally got him to join. Then he became president of the union. And suddenly, he was fighting himself because that union was at war with the Academy, which was him. And so uh, he has this great tale um, that he, of course, dresses up with all sorts of hijinks, Believe them, believe them or not. Um, where he actually sort of he he threatened to uh, destroy the very Academy Award ceremony that he was supposed to host as president, um, unless the producers you know recognized his his guild and and gave into their demands. And it, it it all worked out in the end, just in time. And he you know MC the the Oscars. Um, but you know, I mean, it just it was it was really a war. And you know the 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 spirit of the book is I look for moments of of major conflict, and throughout the '30s, that's what it was.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's also interesting to see uh, kind of how um, how Oscar fights also uh, influenced credits for movies. I mean, it, this is particularly true in the in the in the world of screenwriting. I think, um, and there there are two kind of moments in particular that are that are interesting and worth highlighting here. Uh, the first is. Um, the fight over Citizen Kane and the credit for Citizen Kane and who was going to actually get the screenwriter credit for that. Now, if you've seen Netflix original Mank, of course yeah. you. We all we all know we all we all know this story. But it, but it is but it is a really interesting um, little glimpse into how how the Oscars uh, and and the glory that came with winning one kind of also empowered the very unions they were trying to repel, right?
1: Uh, right I mean you know the the mediation over you know something went to into dispute over who who wrote the screenplay that of course affects who gets potentially nominated or wins an academy award so it has it has this extra importance uh i mean mostly I think screenwriters just want they're fighting over credit if they're fighting at all and then if they get nominated then that's uh that's extra but with with citizen kane that um you know, that dispute, which we all know about from from Mank, um, resulted in Orson Welles and Herman Mankiewicz sharing credit on the screenplay, very uh, uncomfortably sharing credit. And then that turned out to be the only award that Citizen Kane won at the 1942 Oscars that, you know, notoriously lost everything but that. And um, Pauline kale, who wrote about Citizen Kane, famously, and and, and Mankowitz's uh, contributions uh, decades later, felt that the only reason uh, that the Academy gave them Best Screenplay was essentially because Mank was one of their own, and Orson mm-hmm. Welles was an outsider. So, if you believe that, uh, you know, if it hadn't been for Mankowitz's screenwriting co credit, uh, Citizen Kane might have gone completely empty handed.
0: Yeah. And then, uh, and then, uh, we're uh, about a decade or so later, uh, we're into the Hollywood blacklist and the, the Oscars are play kind of a key role in breaking, um, the power of the blacklist, right?
1: Right. I mean, so I was, uh, I saved this chapter to last to, to actually write because I, you know, I was, I was sort of intimidated by the, the gigantic history of the blacklist and how dark it is. Um, you know, really the darkest chapter in Hollywood history, uh, Period, um, I think, and uh, and yet when I when I delved into this story, it, it turned out to be a kind of comedy within the tragedy of the blacklist, which was you had these uh, screenwriters working on the black market under fake names, and um, they kept kind of accidentally winning Oscars, and the Academy <laughs> didn't know what to do. You know, first you had um, okay, you had Dalton Trumbo, famously from the Hollywood Ten, he had gone to prison for defying uh, HUAC. And then he uh, he he wrote uh, he he wrote the story for this movie, The Brave One, under a fake name, Robert Rich. And then Robert Rich won the Oscar in 1957, and no one could find this guy because he wasn't real. Um, and so it became a what, what Life magazine called a "Who Won It." Everyone was looking for Robert Rich, and Trumbo, who was so clever, realized that he could use this. Mini scandal to turn the tables on the Academy and and try to destroy the blacklist. The the Academy had just instituted a rule uh, saying that if you were blacklisted, essentially if you had if you had been in the Communist Party or if you had you had not cooperated with with a congressional committee, you would you would be disqualified from getting an Oscar nomination. And so there was this rule, this hard and fast rule, um, and uh, and Trumbo realized that he could sort of exploit the um, the contradiction that these people were supposed to be blacklisted, and yet they were all over town writing for, you know, bargain rates, uh, and they were writing movies that were now winning Academy Awards. They just weren't using their own names. So he would tell the press people that came to him asking, are you Robert Rich? He'd say, oh, well, I mean, maybe. It might be me. It might be my friend Michael Wilson, you know, who's also blacklisted, trying to create this this play up the open secret that Blacklisted writers were writing not just a lot of movies, but movies that now were winning Academy Awards. And after two years of this farce, the Academy ha- ended up rescinding the rule because it was unenforceable. I mean, other th- crazy things happened, like um, th- the year after the imaginary Robert Rich won, um, the Bridge on the River Kwai won for its screenplay which was credited to Pierre Boulle who wrote the book that the movie was based on well everyone knew Pierre Boulle barely spoke or wrote in English you know he's a Frenchman and and everybody basically knew that the people who actually wrote the screenplay were two blacklisted screenwriters Michael Wilson and Carl Foreman and so suddenly you have like another fake Oscar being given out. And it's, and it's, and, you know, every time this happened, Trumbo would just delight and like plant, you know, from behind his typewriter in the bathtub, just kind of sort of plot his next move. And, and they finally sort of overcame the Academy rule.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a very, it's, it's a funny chapter, um, for sure. Um, I, you know, one of the, one of the, uh, kind of, rolling regular controversies regarding the uh, Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences is who is actually qualified to vote on the Oscars. Who do they open up the roles to? Um, and most recently we saw that, you know, with the the efforts the Academy made to diversify their ranks, right? They added younger members, um, uh, more members from minority groups, more members from foreign countries, mm-hmm. um, which I think, you know, people credit for, among other things, helping Parasite win – um, best picture, uh, you know, Moonlight, right. uh, was benefited from that probably. Um, and, and yeah, everyone's like, oh my gosh, well, this is, you know, this is so controversial, but this has happened before this has happened before, right? Like there, there's a, there's an interesting story in your book about the team up of Gregory Peck and Candace Bergen to, uh, kind of get, uh, new Hollywood in through the doors uh, of the Academy. What what was that? What was that? Tell, tell us that story. What was that all about?
1: Yeah, so this was 1969. Gregory Peck, um, who was well past his Atticus Finch days, was the president of the Academy. And it was very clear to him that there was a problem. You know, Hollywood in general was behind the times. It, it had no idea how to speak to the youth audience, um, you know, except for these notable exceptions like 2001 – a space Odyssey and The Graduate. But, you know, the Oscars were giving Best Picture to Oliver, you know? And um, those those groundbreaking movies like The Graduate 2001 weren't really winning. Um, and, and it, you know, Peck realized that something had to change. And then along came Candace Bergen, who was uh, 22, 23. She was a young starlet and kind of it girl. Um, but she'd been raised in Hollywood. And her father was, of course— Edgar Bergen, the ventriloquist. And um, she watched the awards in 1969 and just thought, "This I don't see anyone my own age. I don't see anyone like me. I don't see any movies that reflect me. So she wrote to Gregory Peck, and these their exchange, which is wonderful, is all preserved in his papers at the Academy Library. Um, and basically said, you, the academy is full of antiquities who are, you know, gumming up the works of the academy. You need new blood. Can I go out and recruit some of my hip friends? Essentially, um, and uh, and Peck said, "Yeah, sure. Be my guest. Here's some here's some some membership cards." And she went went out and found people like Dennis Hopper, who was, you know, of course, this wild man who is coming out with Easy Rider. And, um, you know, she was very uniquely positioned to bridge the generation gap, Candace Bergen. And um, at the same time, and so she got a bunch of people in. At the same time, Peck was planning something much more dramatic, which was to institute a new rule that said, if you hadn't worked in seven years, you would be relegated to non-voting status. And so he came out with this plan right after the 1970 awards and also preserved in his Papers at the Academy Library are the angry letters that he got from old timers saying, you know, how dare you? And you know, people who had worked on Abbott and Costello movies in the '30s and said, how dare you tell me that I'm, you know, irrelevant? And 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 meanwhile, you you bring in like, you know, Barbara Streisand becomes a member before her first movie's even out. You know, Funny Girl. And um, so you just saw this, this clash of generations where Peck kind of was in the middle and, and realized he had to steer the ship and 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 get with the times. And all of this should sound familiar to anyone who followed, you know, the the post-Oscar So White uh, controversy in 2016, where something very similar happened. And the Academy decided it needed to bring in a lot more um diverse members whether that was age, race, gender um uh, geography and uh and there was a ton of pushback and and outcry and and they were also demoting certain people to what they called emeritus status where you couldn't vote for the Oscars if you just had if you were out of the industry and it just hit on this this very Hollywood sort of fear of obsolescence. So it was fascinating to me how history kind of repeated itself. And in fact, in 2016, uh, the president of the academy at the time, Sheryl Boone Isaacs, in a letter to the membership, used uh, the Gregory Peck initiative as a precedent for what she was doing.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the research because it's, it's interesting to hear you talk about the um, going to the academy library and, and going through the papers. What was what was the research process like for uh, certainly the first half of or so of this book? I mean, you're, you're dealing with people who are you know long dead in certain cases, um, or less long dead but still not not around. Um, uh, and there's there's just a there's just a, a wealth of information here. So I mean, what what was your what was your actual research process like? Did you just go to libraries? Are you going through personal papers? How was that? Uh, how was that? That what was that process like?
1: Well, it took me about four years to finish the book, um, and that was really just because of how much research I, I had to do. Um, you know, I I felt like in order to write, you know, even just a chapter about the nineteen forty two Oscars, I had to learn everything there was to know about. You know, how, how Hollywood in general responded to the outbreak of World War II, etc. Um, things that have been written about Citizen Kane and and all that, and but the research uh, process. Tra- really changed from one era to the next. I mean, it's the book starts in the twenties. Obviously, no one's alive. No immediate descendants of those people are alive. So it was really about um, going to libraries, both the mostly the Academy Library and here in New York, uh, the New York Public Library for, for Performing Arts at Lincoln Center, and um, you know, reading old books that had been published from the time uh, and from the years since. Uh, reading contemporary press you know like old issues of variety how things were covered at the time um, you know magazines that are long 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 gone that that went into depth about all of the the politics and the this and that um, and then yeah and then and then letters you know private correspondence you know they have so much great stuff um, especially the Academy Library I mean I was reading telegrams between Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks I mean just incredible uh, stuff and like you know the the um, correspondence that the academy had with um, adolf zucker the the head of paramount about accepting the first ever academy award for outstanding picture and and him you know he, he uh, you know there was a draft of like his acceptance speech which was pre-filmed as a as a as a, uh, as, as a sound film a short sort of short, short sound film to be shown at the ceremony because he was stuck in new york so there's there's incredible stuff to find and then as the eras got a bit later suddenly there would be you know maybe someone to interview maybe a, a a descendant, like I talked to Trump you know, Dalton Trumbo's uh, daughter and Gregory Peck's sons and people like that. And once I hit the sort of 70s, suddenly people started to be really around who had worked on the films. And until I got to the present, you know, the last big chapter is about uh, the year of Oscar So White and Moonlight and La La Land. And those people are not only still around, but very much still in the industry. And that reporting was much more... Um, similar to kind of the, the the Hollywood reporting that I do for The New Yorker, where I'm calling people up, people are anxious about, you know, what to say about their peers, because mm-hmm. they're still in the biz. And um, yeah, it's just totally different.
0: Yeah, no, it's fast. I, and you can you can feel it reading the book, because there's a there's a definite shift from, you know, lots uh, things are in the past tense to things are in the present tense, uh, which as any close reader of magazines or newspapers will tell you like okay he's talking this is again this is me as a journalist reading it thinking right. like oh okay he's he's talking to somebody now he's you know as opposed to reading reading uh old correspondence or something yeah. it's just really interesting and to, several
1: people I, died while i was writing the book and i so i started putting their quotes in in past tense like she said because she was gone i mean uh, you know several people uh i mean you know, Louise Fletcher talked to me about playing Nurse Ratchet in once over the cuckoo's nest, and she just died. You know, last year, and I, you know, I, I sort of that was one of the last changes I made to the book to sort of acknowledge that Louise Fletcher had it was no longer alive. Um, yeah. yeah,
0: yeah, Um All right. Uh, so uh, back back to the back to the meat of the book. You know, I have a very I have a very serious very serious question here. This is uh I, I, the thing I was most shocked by in your book, frankly. Um uh we we have to have some real talk here. Uh the the Snow White Roblo <laughs> intro, which you insist is not as bad as everybody remembers it, makes it out to be. It's I, really I, that's, not. That's the, it's the subtext of that whole chapter. Is that uh the the producer that year got a bad rap, he got he got, you know, kinda kinda screwed by everybody. What is your what's your what is your take on the that was the eighty nine Oscars, the nineteen eighty nine ceremony? The, the notorious um,
1: nineteen eighty nine Oscars, which are always talked about as the worst Oscars ever. And that they, they open with an eleven minute opening number that infamously featured Rob Lowe singing Proud Mary with a woman dressed as Snow White in a replica of the coconut grove with dancing cocktail tables. I mean, it's just, it's insane. It's absolutely insane. And it's bad, you know, it's schlocky and, and over the top and, and completely campy. And people were kind of horrified by it at the time. Um, but I do think that, uh, it's, I I wanted to change the way we think about it essentially, because it's sort of just brought up every year as this joke, worst Oscars ever. Oh, wasn't that horrible? Snow White. Um, First of all, if you just look at the year before, it was just as schlocky, you know, the, those the 80 the ceremonies throughout the 80s started with these big crazy production numbers and, you know, I start that chapter with the 1988 Academy Awards describing, you know, Pee-wee Herman, you know, presenting an award and being attacked by RoboCop with like laser shooting. I mean, like the the Academy Awards of the 80s were very tacky. Um, and so the 1989 opening number was kind of just the apotheosis of it, but it got all the blame, and a lot of that has to do with Alan Carr, who was, uh, you know, he was best known for producing Grease, but also for being a kind of flamboyant, over the top figure. Uh, he threw these lavish house parties um, at his at his home, and um, you know, he he was known for wearing a, a, an array of uh, designer caftans, and he was a very flamboyant openly gay man at a, at a very homophobic time um, and he dreamt his whole life of producing the Oscars. He, he finally got the chance and, um, and it ruined his life essentially. But w- part of the reason is that he wanted everyone to know these are the Alan Carr Oscars. These are going to be the biggest, most glamorous Oscars you've ever seen. I'm going to bring back the glamour, bring back the style and he put his name everywhere. So, you know, most people don't know who's producing the Academy Awards year to year. I mean, unless you're really inside, the, you know, the Oscar right. thing, uh people don't pay attention. But Alan Card put his name everywhere. And so and then he had staged this gigantic opening number that uh got terrible reviews, and because it got terrible reviews, Disney um threatened to sue the Academy for, you know, unlawful use of their Snow White uh design. And uh, and because all of this was creating such a terrible press for the Academy, this group of Hollywood elders like Gregory Peck and um, and Blake Edwards and Julie Andrews all got together and signed an open letter to the Academies talking about what an embarrassment this ceremony had been. So it just built and built and built. There was this snowball effect and everybody knew where to point the finger, which was Alan Carr, because he had put his name absolutely everywhere. And, um and so his life was, you know, his career was ruined overnight. You know, it's really a sort of, in the way that it, I said before, in the Blacklist, I kind of found a, a comedy about the Blacklist within the tragedy. For this chapter, I really felt like I was finding a, a tragedy within the comedy, because all of the details of it are completely insane and like over the top and 80s and schlocky and, and, and nuts. And yet there was this real person at the center who was a kind of Icarus figure who flew too close to the sun and, and then you know, fell into the sea. Um, And, you know, for the Oscars, the impact that it had was that they set up a committee to review the quality of the show. And then the next year, you really have the first kind of modern Oscars where it was the first year that Billy Crystal hosted and it was much more pared down. There wasn't a gigantic, lavish production number that seemed Trapped in another age from like you know variety TV of the 70s. It was it was it was the 1990 awards and you had Billy Crystal come out and you know do a stand-up routine. Um, and so yeah, so it, it had a lot of impact for just the way that that the ceremony evolved.
0: And that is kind of what we have now, still. I mean, this is why you, you have Whoopi Goldberg hosting, Chris Rock hosting. I mean, this is this is the the kind of standard form of the show going after.
1: Yeah, and there had been hosts, you know, like Bob Hope. But um, I, I, you, you, you notice the shift if you go from 1989 to 1990. You know, they, they sort of realized, okay, we, ca- we cannot put on a giant variety show with like chorus girls, you know, dancing in Oscar suits anymore, because people had recoiled so much from the Snow White Rob Lowe thing.
0: Yeah, uh, moving into the 1990s, then into the, particularly into the uh, well, I mean, throughout throughout the whole decade, really, uh, it, it the Oscars becomes the Harvey's. I mean, it is a uh, it is a a tricky time in the industry because Harvey Weinstein uh, and his brother are basically elbowing their way into every awards race, every conversation. They're running aggressive campaigns. They're running aggressive negative campaigns, which is something that you know is very much frowned upon. Uh, in the Oscars how did that how did that change the landscape of uh, the Oscar competition I mean I it's it's I I, you know I lived through this era it's always kind of interesting to read the the post-mortems and the the ways in which uh, Weinstein understood that you could wrap a movie in politics and with political figures and buy yourself a lot of cover and free press oh that's right
1: I mean one of the things that he did was sort of Kind of create humanitarian campaigns that 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 made his movies seem like they were causes. You know, even going back to uh, My Left Foot, you know, he he brought Daniel Day Lewis to Washington and screened the movie for you know uh, fifty senators, um, and you know all the way going up to like. Uh, Silver Lining's Playbook, which he sort of turned into a, an important movie about mental illness, which I really don't think it is. Um, and Lion, which was his last campaign year was Lion. Um, and he placed this really tone deaf ad, uh, after, uh, Trump came to power with the face of that little, the little boy from India who had had some kind of red tape problem getting to the premiere. And he, and the, the ad said something like, you know, it took, it took mountains of, you know, red, getting over mountains of red tape to get Sonny Pawar to, the, the premiere of line next year, he may not be able to. You know, and it's so tasteless, but he just yeah. pushed every conceivable angle. So in the nine, throughout the 90s, Miramax was growing and gaining a lot of power and visibility. And one of the ways that Harvey Weinstein did that was through very aggressive Oscar campaigns. So, um, you know, he would do things like have his staff members call Academy members at home to say, oh, you know, have you seen the movie? Can we set up a screening? Have you seen it? Did you like it? What do you think? Uh, just sort of relentlessly calling everyone. Um, And he would find little pockets of Academy members. You know, if there were three Academy members living in, you know, the Phoenix area, he'd set up a screening of something for them. And then just bring everyone from the movie, the talent on, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks of relentless campaign stops, you know, and cocktail parties Um, and spent a lot of money. So much money that sometimes people who made the movies who were supposed to get, you know, profits on the back end realized that all of that had all disappeared because it had gone into the Oscar campaign. Um, So yeah, it was really about, you know, none of these things were necessarily things that he invented. um, But he saw himself as an underdog. And he saw Miramax as an underdog. So it was the New York indie company, despite the fact that it was eventually acquired by Disney. Um, And so, you know, he really felt justified in just pulling out all the stops. Um, That chapter about him Culminates with the 1999 Oscar race between Shakespeare in Love and Saving Private Ryan, which is very much remembered as the ugliest best picture fight ever. And I think that's that was really the inflection point um, because it was so ugly. It involved, um, you know, part of this story had to do with DreamWorks, which really felt like, okay, this is, you know, Saving Private Ryan is like our marquee movie. It's the first movie they came out with since they had, been created in 1994, that it was a huge hit. It was a Spielberg movie. It was a, it was the, the obvious front runner for best picture. A- and then along comes Shakespeare and Love from Miramax that kind of changed the conversation completely. Um, and what really made it ugly was that DreamWorks heard through the grapevine that Weinstein was telling journalists to write that Saving Private Ryan was only good for the first 25 minutes, the famous D-Day sequence. And then after that, it just became a standard World War II movie. And so once DreamWorks heard that, it just became this all-out war where that spilled over into the press. I mean, there was a Nikki Fink article in New York Magazine talking about how contentious this battle was. And I think people hadn't really... The general public had not been paying so much attention to the mechanics of Oscar campaigning in this way. But when Shakespeare in Love won Best Picture... It was such a shock. Um, the, the DreamWorks head of marketing at the time, Terry Press, says that she was in the mezzanine watching and she said, I felt like my face was on fire. There was this just groundswell of resentment and anger toward toward Weinstein. Um, and Hollywood didn't want that to happen again. They, this, they felt this guy had come to their turf and taken from something from them. So they essentially replicated his playbook the next year. DreamWorks uh, had American Beauty, and they did everything they thought Harvey Weinstein had had done, and and doubled it, and and outspent every other studio in campaign spending, in ad spending, um, and then the next, and they won, and then the next year they won with Gladiator, and then two years later Harvey was back and won for Chicago, um, and so as the people in the studios realized that they needed to sort of co- they needed to play Harvey Weinstein's game, that's how this. So-called Weinstein playbook spread, and this ecosystem was created of of uh, of strategists and nonstop year-round campaigning and big money um, to the point where the Academy had to start creating rules to sort of rein it all in.
0: Well, and this also gives rise to uh, it gives you know it kind of creates the ecosystem for the Oscar bloggers, right? Your awards dailies and that sort of thing. I was a little surprised that you didn't talk more about that because it feels like, I mean, th- maybe this is just me looking at it from the outside as a a person on Twitter and a reader of blogs, but it yeah. feels like, you know, that was like, that's like uh, a fairly big part of the story of the Oscars certainly through the late 2000s to the mid-2010s um, that I, I like it didn't I didn't feel like it got a lot of play in your book. I'm curious if from your perspective as somebody who is, you know, kind of following the ins and outs of all mm-hmm, this stuff, mm-hmm. was it was it is it just not that was it just not that important was the narrative setting amongst the Oscars bloggers not really that important as as certainly they they made it out to be and everybody well, else was it just
1: yeah to be honest my my Weinstein chapter got incredibly long, and I had to cut a lot of things um, and just felt like i couldn't go to every uh, couldn't, couldn't couldn't go into everything but i I do have a little bit of that in there. It was really interesting to see how the this the growth of the cottage industry that was happening around the turn of the twenty first century that I just discussed was happening at the same time as the burgeoning of the blogosphere and sites popping up like oscar watch and gold derby all these things that created this the kind of this other parallel cottage industry of oscarologists that we have now people who are covering it and prognosticating year-round um i think those two things are they're not the same thing but they're related in the sense that i think that the uh the contentiousness and the mechanics of the 1999 race had become so public that people were thinking about just camp- the campaign in a different way. People were thinking about the season in a different way. Um, and it became more gamified and more online. And there were suddenly you know, opportunities to, to follow this, this wild and crazy thing called award season, not just the week of the Oscars, but for months and months and months and eventually year-round.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Wild times. Um, uh, Let's see. Uh, I don't know. It's 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 an interesting it's an interesting thing to think about, especially as again, like now you've got film Twitter, which basically, you know, uh, thinks that it is out there setting the agenda. And I'm not sure that's really the case. I don't I I don't get the sense that, you know, uh, a ton of Academy members are necessarily paying attention. But maybe maybe it is with the the influx of newer and younger members.
1: Well, you definitely see with the rise of social media that that there is pushback that sometimes has an an influence and sometimes doesn't. But just think about Oscars So White. That was a hashtag. That was a trending hashtag that started in 2015 and then exploded in 2016. And if that hadn't happened, who knows if the Academy would have acted and done something by – by announcing this, this diversification initiative. But I think, you know, public pressure from social media certainly played a role um, that year. And I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm on Twitter, I, you know, I follow the awards conversation on on social media. And I think uh, it's really interesting, because there is some overlap between film Twitter and the Academy the actual voters but there also is a lot of uh non-overlap and that can lead to some whiplash when people are just surprised by what the academy is doing because we thought oh we thought we had settled this on film twitter months ago we decided that so-and-so was terrible and this was bad and that was good and -and so-and-so is gonna win and it turns out the academy is actually like you know nine or ten thousand people who some of them are on twitter and some of them are like you know Eighty, <laughs>
0: yeah. We could we could call this we could call this the Green Book effect. Oh yeah yeah the, yeah for sure the the way to think about this. All right, uh, that was everything I wanted to ask. I always like to close these uh, interviews by asking if there's anything I should have asked. If you think there's anything folks should know about your book, about the Oscars in general, uh, you know what we've got coming. We, we've got an awards ceremony here in a couple of weeks. We got the uh, I don't know we a week now, do. right? What is it March? What is it? It's it's coming up here. So what are, what are, what do you think folks should know?
1: um the book is long but it's really fun i hope um (laughs) you know i wanted to make it entertaining um so uh it does cover a lot of history but um i wanted people to have a good time and um i don't know i'll i'll be at the oscars uh i'm looking forward to seeing what happens this year i don't think it'll top last year in terms of you know crazy shit happening but (laughs) we shall see
0: who are you wearing Uh, At the Oscars this year. Oh, here's an
1: important thing for people to know. I have finally, (laughs) uh, after years of renting tuxes from Men's Warehouse, invested in my own actual tuxedo, uh, the first that I've gotten that I've bought since my high school prom. So I will be hitting the red carpet in my very own Men's Warehouse tuxedo this year. And uh, (laughs) I plan to wow
0: Excellent. Excellent. That's good to know. Uh, Michael, thank you for being on the show. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks so much for having Um, me, and thanks for for reading the book.
0: The name of the book, again, uh, it's Oscar Wars, A History of Hollywood in Gold, Sweat, and Tears. Uh, Michael Shulman is the author. You can find it... Uh, at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, wherever books are sold, uh, and I definitely again, if you're if you're interested in the history of Hollywood broadly, just more broadly even than the Oscars specifically, this is a must read. I mean, I think you you can't understand the industry without understanding how the industry thinks of itself and what the industry wants to uh, reward. I think it's an important, uh, it's it's one of the most important lenses through which to to see the business of showbiz. So uh, check it out if you get a chance. Uh, My name is Sonny Bunch. I'm culture editor at The Bulwark. And uh, I will be back next week with another episode of The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. We'll see you guys then.